Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridge Hit. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and if Kiana's listening, I am varying up my introduction uh, to make sure that she doesn't get bored. On to the interview for today. I've decided to interview a couple of different apologists because I've been noticing that the debates that have been happening online as the sexual revolution clashes with Christianity, and and we're sort of seeing this take place in the legal sphere, we're seeing this take place in the political sphere, there's a great cultural argument going on right now about which worldview uh, we should consider most when we're not only living our daily lives, but uh, rearranging our political systems and our legal systems. And there are a lot of really great Christian writers and thinkers and intellectuals who deal with these questions quite regularly. I've interviewed a number of them, like Oz Guinness, who will be coming on again uh, later this summer, uh, Dr. Robert P. George, who will also be joining us again soon for a discussion on these issues. But I, today I wanted to talk to uh, Dr. Craig Hazen. He's actually the director of Christian Apologetics at Biola University. He's an author, a professor, and he speaks at a lot of conferences making the case for why Christianity is reasonable and why people should listen to it. He's the author of books like To Everyone an Answer, A New Mormon Challenge, A World Religions and Cults 101, and a number of others. And he writes very frequently on these issues. So in order to have an informed discussion on the way forward for Christian apologetics and how Christians can really engage on issues that are coming up more and more often, uh, but where everything is, is louder and louder and there seems to be more heat than light. I wanted to just have a discussion about the way forward for Christian apologetics. So I, I, I gave Dr. Craig Hayson a call. He was kind enough to speak with us, and this is that conversation. We have been having a, quite a discussion uh, here in Canada in the media about secularism, the connection between church and state, and there's been a bunch of magazine articles published, including McLean's, one of Canada's major magazines, asking questions like, uh, did Jesus Christ actually exist? Which uh, a lot of people shared on social media, so obviously these questions are, are surfacing with increasing regularity, and it's up to Christians to, to provide a, a Christian response to those. So to start off with the fundamental question, um, why would you say that, that Scripture is reliable? Wow. Well, I'm, I'm just intrigued first by the, uh, uh, the issue of the existence of Jesus. Right. <laughs> It, it really, it really strikes me as strange. In fact, it strikes me as a as a singular failure of the the educational institutions in North America that people <laughs> could be seriously considering such a thing. Uh, even even skeptics and and people who do not believe in supernatural activity, who are historians of pretty good caliber, guys like John Dominic Crossan, think that not only did Jesus exist, but uh, the idea that uh, Jesus was crucified by a Roman execution team is about as good a historical piece of knowledge as you're ever going to get. Right. <laughs> that's, uh, and that's from a secular uh, anti-supernatural historian. Uh, my goodness. Uh, so that I think that just reflects on a terrible educational system where we've really lost our way. It's a it's an over the top historical skepticism. Right. I think that we're we're, we're encounter, encountering there. I mean, if you're going to throw out the existence of Jesus or some of the fundamental issues in his life, you pretty much have to throw out everything you know about the ancient world because uh, the facts surrounding the life of Jesus are some of the best attested facts of the ancient world. Right. 
Now, a lot of people would say, okay, let's say Jesus existed based on, on historical evidence, and that's something secular historians can agree on, but I'm sure you've heard the, the often put out there statement by atheists like Christopher Hitchens that says, extraordinary, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. So, let's say a Jewish rabbi named Jesus once existed. Uh, isn't it a bit of a stretch to assume that he actually rose from the dead? Well... Uh, the, now, the, this gets to uh, an important issue. Uh, the, the, it really doesn't have to do with historical knowledge. It has to do with people's worldviews that they're bringing to the body of historical evidence. Right. A guy like Christopher Hitchens is, is just certain that you know, supernatural things don't happen. Well, my goodness, how can he be so certain of that? I mean, I've, I met Christopher Hitchens. We chatted a bit, and uh, honestly, he didn't seem like a man who could travel through time or a person who is open to some supernatural revelation to understand that miracles could never take place. In other words, to, to know that miracles can't take place, you have to do one of two things. You either have to examine every uh, claim of a miracle in, in the world today and then through history and <laughs> determine that, that they, you know, through careful evidential examination that they don't happen, or you have to uh, have a miracle yourself, a miracle of revelation from somebody who has a, a better sight than you do, somebody who transcends it all, can see it all. Right. And, uh, I mean, Christopher Hitchens didn't strike me as a fellow who uh, could do either of those. And so I think uh, being a little more modest in our claims, you know, perhaps a miracle has taken place. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe that's worth exploring. I don't think we ought to jump on the miracle bandwagon at every turn, but when uh, when there's good reason to think one might have happened, I think that ought to capture our attention and our and our focus for a period of time. Right, and, and he would say, you just said, you know, it's we need to make some modest claims, and I think that's the, the the fundamental premise of a lot of the new atheist movement is that Christianity is making fundamentally immodest claims, claims that are too big for the evidence that we have, and thus, you know, billions of people believing in something like this. Is is a bit ridiculous. So, how would you respond as someone who's who spent your career defending Christianity to the claim claim that that what Christians are saying is actually very immodest when you look at what they are saying? Yeah, you know, it, it, that's that's a good point. It really is kind of immodest uh, that that we can actually know the overarching story of all that ever was, is, or will be. That there really is some grand meta narrative that that plugs. Uh, all of human life and experience into uh, into a grand story uh, uh, for which we can make sense. And that you're right. That is a that is a huge claim. But you know what? Sometimes we make huge claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the question is, can we back them up? Is there right. good reason to believe that God exists? That He created human beings for a particular purpose? That is to have. Uh, relationship with him through all eternity, and that there was a terrible turn when human beings rebelled against God, and that God, you know, helped uh, create a pathway back to himself for the wayward human beings through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, that is a story, and, it, and I claim as a, uh, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, that this thing is true, mm-hmm. and it's probably the very best explanation uh, for why the universe exists, why we exist, why we're in such damnable trouble as, as a human race. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it actually paves a way back. It gives us hope that we can actually solve these problems, or at least God can through his power. 
And you see, we have some very good reasons to believe that Christianity is the best explanation for the world as we see it. Now, this is where we get into uh, the apologetics that secularists, those who are willing to reason with Christians, might be very interested. So what sorts of reasons could you point out that you would say, this is why, objectively speaking, Christianity is the best explanation for why things are the way we see them? Yeah, I had the, I had the good fortune, and I really do consider it to be good fortune, to to have uh, done my doctoral work in uh, comparative religions. Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to study Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and, you know, Mormonism, you name it, I got a chance to study it, you know, from the original sources, from people who are great scholars in these fields and people who are practitioners on the ground. And and I got to tell you, after, after going through all of that, I, I became uh, quite convinced that the only hope uh, would be through the Christian faith. And there's other uh, approaches to reality that aren't even encapsulated by the, uh, or they're not captured by uh, the basic religions. And, and uh, they would be worldviews. A worldview like naturalism would be one of the main competitors right. against Christianity uh, in the Western world. And, and naturalism, of course, says that, that, that really there are no supernatural activities. There's no supernatural God. There's no supernatural creation. Everything can be explained, ultimately, through the laws of chemistry and physics. And so that stands against Christianity, as, as do some of the great world religions. Uh, the thing I like the most about Christianity that, that sets it apart from the pack for me especially in terms of comparing it to other religions, is that Christianity is decidedly testable. Right. It's testable. And what I mean by testable is that you can offer evidence for it, you can offer evidence, evidence against it, and the evidence actually means something. In other words, you can, you, can, uh, you can determine whether to be a follower of Jesus Christ or not by the evidence in the case. And that kind of boggles people's minds. They're, used, they're not used to thinking of religion in those kinds of terms. Like, no, no, religion is a thing you close your eyes and then you blindly leap into, right? Uh, no, that's, that's not necessarily the case with Christianity. Now, you can do that if you want in Christianity, but you're not required to. Right. You can actually walk into it with your eyes wide open, asking hard questions all the way. And I found that to be unique to Christianity and set it apart. Just the idea that you can investigate it, and the investigation will mean something, uh, set Christianity apart from the pack. Now, there's something you said just a bit earlier there that I want to unpack a little bit. Uh, you said that when you when you looked through all the religions as well, I know that, that Christianity stood apart from the pack for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is it's such a, a beautiful explanation of the world, which would lead to one of the, the accusations that I hear from atheists quite a bit which is that Christianity is just a bit of wishful thinking, uh, that because it pulls everything together uh, so beautifully, that it's a, a simplistic way of looking at the world that humans have essentially invented in order to make sense of the world around them, and also because the, the story of redemption inherent to the Christian story is something that a lot of people uh, desire because of mistakes they've made in the past. Now, you said that Christianity is testable, so in response to, to the claim that Christianity is wishful thinking, what are some ways in which Christianity can be, can be tested uh, in a way that secularists can say, okay, you tested that, that makes sense. What are some evidences that we can put forward to secular people that they can actually recognize from the confines of their own worldview? 
Yeah, well, there's really one major point of testability in Christianity and, and that, that sets it apart. And it's this, this radical idea that Jesus really did come back from the dead, that, right. that he was alive at point A, he was dead at point B, and then he was alive again at point C. I think the historical record is clear and compelling that that really happened. And according to the New Testament, I mean, the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says something that I think is the strangest statements in all of religious literature. He says, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, your faith is empty. Right. He says it again, your faith is worthless if Jesus did not come back from the dead. And that's remarkable. You don't find that kind of statement in any world religion on the planet today or through history, where they actually hang the entire system by a thread. So it really does have to do with uh, Jesus really existing, dying at the hands of a Roman crucifixion team, and then coming back on the third day, exactly as the New Testament describes. And I think we, I think we can actually know that that happened. How? We can know. I think the evidence is clear and compelling to where we can claim that that's knowledge that we can have. What are some of that pieces of compelling Christianity apart from the pack? Right. What are some of those compelling pieces of evidence to those listening who are saying, "Okay, you say that there's compelling evidence for this having taken place. Where is that evidence?" Yeah, you know, people would be kind of shocked to find out uh, how strong this case really is. I mean, uh, there's there's a there's a body of knowledge surrounding Jesus that even secular historians agree with. In fact, this, this set of facts really comes from secular historians. If you read through all that they've written over the last, you know, uh, 20 or 30 or maybe 50 years, you can piece together a, a set of facts that I think really go to the heart of the matter. For instance, that Jesus really existed and he died by crucifixion. That's that is historical bedrock. You can take that to the bank, historically. That he was buried in some way or another. That his, that his, uh, his death caused his disciples to despair and lose hope, you know, believing that his life was ended. That's, that's historical bedrock. Another very solid uh, piece of historical knowledge that even secular people tend to agree with is that the tomb of Jesus was discovered to be empty just a few days later that that has to be factored into the story because the historical sources for the empty tomb are so strong. Right. And then get this. Uh, another bit of historical knowledge is that the disciples of Jesus, those his close followers, had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. And then one of my favorites is that uh, even secular people who study these things uh, tend to agree that the disciples were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify themselves with Jesus to, to bold proclaimers of his death and resurrection. Uh, and that's, that's just a small handful, but, but the things I've just recited there are, for the most part, historical bedrock. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the things that the, uh, the, the solid majority of critical scholars who, who actually study these things would agree to be true. Now, there's another two uh, connected questions that follow directly from that one. So there will be a lot of people who say, I, I read the New Testament, I find it very attractive, I find uh, the character and person of Jesus Christ as recounted in the Gospels a very powerful and compelling one. But if you're a Christian, you of course have to accept the fact that the New Testament rests on the foundation of the Old Testament. 
and they would claim that the Old Testament is a substantially uh, darker book, and they claim that there's sort of a separation in character between what they see in the Lord Jesus in the New Testament and the, uh, the, the Jewish God of the Old Testament. How would you explain to a secularist uh, that the Old Testament is not as it seems, and that the New Testament proceeds naturally from the Old? I suggest they read the Song of Solomon. <laughs> right. You know, this great love poetry in the middle of the, the Old Testament. You know, it's, uh, it's, it seems to be out of character with the idea that the Old Testament is a, it's just a, a dark book and gloomy and really uh, doesn't really shed any, any brightness on human life at all. Uh, you know, people who do say that, I just don't think have really dug into uh, what the Old Testament is really all about. And certainly they haven't dug into the Psalms or the... Uh, or even the Proverbs or the Song of Solomon, some of the mm-hmm. wisdom literature that, that is just one of the brightest lights. You know, the Old Testament, by and large, is telling the story of a wayward people. And there's a, there is a lot of darkness and mistakes and going the wrong direction and God so patiently and gently trying to bring people back. And uh, people would just not have any of it. So there, there ended up being a lot of problems for the, uh, the people who are described in the Old Testament. But... Uh, you know, I, I think anybody who's 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 you know gone through theology 101 would understand that uh, there's no huge disconnect between the Old Testament and the New mm-hmm. Testament. But well, here, here's the difficulty with cultural engagement: is that most people haven't even uh, studied theology whatsoever, much less theology 101. And what we're seeing uh, on all of the major blogs and websites from Salon.com, Huffington Post, uh, Mother Jones, is that every single time, for example. Uh, people tried to highlight the incompatibility between uh, the Islamic worldview and modern Western civilization. They say, well, look at this verse in the Old Testament that proves that Christianity can be as dark and cruel as Islam is. Now, they don't understand, as you've pointed out, that theology doesn't work that way, and that there's a, a huge body of work surrounding the Old Testament that would put that into context for them. But the simple case is that as Christian apologists, we have a responsibility to try and explain this to the the culture in ways that they can understand. So how would we go about explaining to them uh, sort of the rudimentary facts about how the Old Testament relates to the New so that we can somehow engage them in this argument that they're having about how Christianity and, for example, Islam are the same thing? Yeah, you know, I don't have any fast and easy answer on that one. So here's two things that aren't fast and easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, for goodness sakes, actually, if you're interested in this question, pull out some of the best books on the topic and read through them. I think you'll be uh, shocked to find out uh, the, that there's an amazing resonance between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And secondly, I'd say uh, just pull out the Old Testament itself and read it. And you'll very quickly come to the conclusion that this uh, this isn't some darkness issued from God. This is actually telling a story of some people, and, and honestly, the, the darkness that, that human beings are generating themselves. Uh, but there is a message of hope all on really every page of the Old Testament, uh, that God loves people and, he's, and he wants nothing more than to bring them to himself. Reminds me of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke standing over Jerusalem, you know, he's, he's looking at Jerusalem, and he's kind of summing up the Old Testament travails here, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have, you've stoned the prophets, and you've killed those who I've sent to you. How long I've wanted to gather you into my arms like a chick gathers her brood, but you would not. 
I mean, in my view, that, that encapsulates the Old Testament message. You know, God was waiting there all along to gather people mm-hmm. into himself, and they just kept shaking their fist and going their own way. In some ways, it's a, it's a tremendous love story uh, that God was so patient. Even to the point where you, when you do move into the New Testament, he's, he's giving the ultimate sacrifice for the wayward people, you know, providing the sacrifice of his son on the cross. Well, and this is uh, another thing people bring up in, in regards to the Old Testament, is the problem of evil. That if a good God exists, uh, then doesn't it naturally follow that the good God would have had to have created evil and good? Otherwise, why does evil exist? And I know you've written on this topic before. Yeah, in fact, I have a colleague at Biola University uh, in our Master of Arts program in Christian Apologetics. His name is Clay Jones, and he's an expert on this. He's, he's got a book in the works on it, uh, but he speaks on this topic for us all the time. And in order to really answer the question about why God allows evil, you really have to tell a story. And it's, a sto- it's kind of the arc of, uh, of creation, fall, and redemption mm-hmm. to really understand how this works. But, but in the, I think the Christians do the very best work in trying to make sense of evil in the world. Um, in the Christian view, or at least most Christian theologians would, would I think, lean in this direction, that uh, evil in the world is a byproduct of human rebellion against God. You know, God, God didn't uh, insert this evil. We, we shook our fist at him and went our own way. And uh, the reason we were able to do this is because God, God gave us freedom of the will. He wanted a real love relationship with human beings. And in order to have a real love relationship... Uh, you need uh, uh, both parties need a freedom to uh, move toward one another, or even to move away from each other. And in the case of God and humanity, humanity exercised that freedom, moved away from God, and it ushered in all kinds of nastiness. Uh, human beings fell. Uh, uh, the, the even the natural world was was shaken and, and and turned upside down. And unfortunately, that's a, that's the world in which we live today. Uh, God wants nothing more than to correct this. He wants to wipe away every tear and bring everybody to himself uh, so, that, so that it can be exactly like it was in the beginning when, when people walked with God in the cool of the garden. That's, that's what his vision for us is. Um, and evil, unfortunately, is something we ushered in. And uh, to, uh, this, this is doing a terrible job on something that really requires you know, several hours of, of good uh, theology and biblical exegesis to understand. It's a complex issue. Uh, but I think Christians do have the very best answer. And, and guess what? Yeah, it's not just the Christians who face a, a problem of evil. Everybody has a problem of evil. In fact, uh, the atheists and the naturalists have a, have a much more dire problem of evil. How do they explain evil? In fact, how can they even recognize evil without some sort of standard of good, and where uh-huh. where are they going to get a standard of good through the laws of chemistry and physics? So everybody faces this problem. I think Christians ultimately have the best answer for it. So when when you interact with secularists, because you work in the field of apologetics, which arguments for Christianity have you found the most helpful in engaging? Because I think it's it's pretty transparent, just based on the way the media treats Christianity. They don't even pretend, for the most part. Uh, to respect it as a worldview, to think that it's an actually an intellectually rigorous field of study. Uh, their, their general default 
is now to, to, to sort of mock it and to despise it because, of course, the, the sexual revolution has come head-to-head mm. with Christianity, and thus Christianity is considered to be mean, spiteful, hateful. How do we tell that? Uh, how, do, how do we explain that it isn't in a, in a conversation in which we don't have time to tell the whole story in which we don't have time, you know, to, to give them a theological book that people won't read because people don't read anymore. <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, when I train my own students, I, I like to really uh, focus in on, on three things, three things. Uh, first one is the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a special uh, piece of evidence, a special set of arguments that really cuts through the spiritual fog like anything else. I mean, there's, there's just nothing like it. And so if you're having some sort of spiritual discussion with a Muslim or a Buddhist or uh, uh, somebody like that, you, you bring up the resurrection of Jesus, and suddenly the conversation changes. It's all focused on that. And it can be a very meaty discussion because there's so much good uh, historical evidence to talk about. And it's quite compelling and quite uh, uh, convincing. So that's, that's one. Number two is to show the unique nature of Christianity, that, that Christianity is testable, like I mentioned before, that, that salvation in the system is a free gift from God, that you get an amazing worldview fit with Christianity. Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. Um, and, and Christianity, interestingly, has Jesus at the center, and that's actually a big point for it. And some people say, well, that sounds like you're stacking the deck. There. I go, not really, because almost every religion I've bumped into wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants to co-opt him and bring him into their system. And so if you're kind of searching through the various religions, it makes a lot of sense to start with the religion that has Jesus at the center. So those are two things. I've got uh, the resurrection, and I've got this uh, uh, Christianity as it stands apart from the other world religions. And the third one would be, uh, and I, I always tell our students, don't neglect this. Just uh, talk about the transformation that has taken place in your own life. Mm-hmm. My goodness, at the end of the day, that's what people want to know. They go, want to know, can I, is there hope for me? Can I, can I actually be on a different path? Can I change inwardly? Because I sense that there's something wrong inside. And, and clearly I can't change this myself. And anybody who looks inside and sees that kind of situation in their own heart and uh, here's a testimony from a Christian who has gone through that transformation. That is compelling, and that's that's really solid evidence. It doesn't mean that there's not stories like that in other kinds of religions, but I think the Christian uh, testimony of transformation at the at at the hands of the Holy Spirit is is something that just can't be neglected because I think it's qualitatively different than you might something you might find in other religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a final. Uh train of thought here is that we know that Christian apologetics uh, has to sort of rise to meet the challenge of the arguments being put forward and there was one there was one speaker who put it very well they said uh, Christians used to debate secularists on uh, historical evidence and on the veracity of scripture and a number of things now uh, the argument seems to be Christianity is hateful because Christianity says that that Bob and Jim can't get married how does Christian apologetics uh, sort of rise to meet the cultural challenges that have really started surfacing in a more hostile fashion over the past decade? Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking that question. I mean, I go on enough uh, secular university campuses where this gets brought up all the time. Mm-hmm. And, 
And to be honest, this this isn't a dodge, but it it's an important line of thinking. I uh, if somebody brings that up when I'm trying to give some sort of you know uh, academic message on. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus, you know, during the Q&A, somebody will bring up, hey, but, but I'm not going to listen to any of this because, you know, Christians are mean to uh, people of other faiths or uh, sexual practices and so on. And, and uh, so uh, my, my way of dealing with it is, now, let me ask you this, audience member who's asking a question, let me ask you this. Um, if there is a God, and if that God has spoken about human sexuality, um, would that make a difference to you? Right. And they kind of hem and haw, you know, well, I don't know. You go, no, no, just, just humor me. This is a hypothetical. If there is a God, and if that God, if he, she, it, or they, <laughs> you know, right. want to be open at this point, uh, if, that, if that deity has spoken about human sexual practices, would, would that make a difference to you? At some point they go, okay. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that would make a difference if there's some God who could speak a billion galaxies into existence, and he's telling human beings, you know, about, uh, about their own sexuality. I suppose that would make a difference. And I go, exactly. So let's talk about that. Is there a God, and has that God spoken? And then we're back into the realm of great strength for Christian apologetics, you know, offering good uh, arguments. Uh, most of the issues that, that we get tossed in our face today, I, I consider to be secondary issues. Uh, because really, if there is a God, and that God has clearly spoken about what will make a human being flourish, what human beings are supposed to do to live the very best life they can, and to really find uh, joy and happiness, I mean, I, I want to know what that is. All right. Well, Dr. Hazen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Oh, my great pleasure. And if anybody wants more info on this, uh, check out our website at biola, B-I-O-L-A dot E-D-U, and look for the Apologetics Program. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. Thank you. Bye.